show that discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership, and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. All right. Welcome, friends, to this episode. We have a guest today, Dr. Shane Wood. Shane is a New Testament theologian, and he's a professor at Ozark Christian College, where he teaches New Testament studies. And Shane just released a brand new book called Between Two Trees. I think the book's been out about a month, maybe six weeks or so. I got it as soon as it came out because for me, it hit exactly the kind of theology I love to read, which is good theology that's infused with pathos, it's infused with his own life journey. Um, This is a book, honestly, I think anybody should read. So in the show description, I've got a link to the book where you can buy it. Shane and I get into all kinds of topics in his book. He's a provocative thinker. He's a deeply thoughtful guy. And I think my most favorite of all for me is Shane has taken very seriously how to integrate his pain into experiencing deeper levels of grace. He's really a remarkable thinker. I think you're going to notice that as we get into the interview. And I started by asking Shane about one of the more powerful themes in his book, where he writes about how the human makes a union with death and the implications of that. Yeah, you know, it's um, it, it's basically like it begins with this premise that um, maybe the problem of Eden is worse than what we've ever thought. Uh, it, because the, the, the thing that's uh, important about that insight for me was if we abbreviate the problem, then we abbreviate the solution. And so this book begins with talking about maybe, matter of fact, I think, I think the first chapter is called something like... Um, you know, the problem or wages of sin, it's worse than hell. Uh, yes, that is right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. it. Make sure you fact checked me on that one. <laughs> well, and that's a great way to sell books, too. I think that's a good good approach nowadays. Yeah. No, but the, the, the reason why that's such an important something to me is that in the Garden of Eden, a lot of times we've 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 made it as if all we've done is broken a divine law. And it's not that that's not true. But my question was, is what if it's worse than that? Um, and as I dive into the narrative of the Gospels, um, especially in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, uh, w- what seems to be evident is that is that actually our problem with death is not just a problem of breaking a rule. It's that in a very real sense, we have become one flesh with death. So that the ways that death thinks and the way that death moves and how death breathes, we naturally do the same. Uh, because, and that's why I think it's super fascinating that Adam and Eve ingest the fruit, uh, because what you ingest in a very real sense becomes a part of you. It, it's impossible for me to separate, you know, me and my breakfast without doing damage to both. And, uh, and, and even parts of it are still present in both of us. Uh, and the question that I begin the book with is, what if that is, what if that's what happened in Eden? What if we became one flesh with death? Um, and how does this explain uh, some of the things that we see in our world today, like, um, you know, racism and um, I even get into my own past of, of sexual abuse, being a sexual abuse victim. And and how is this actually just enacting the grammar of death? Now, eventually, I do I do make a turn in the middle towards hope <laughs> where I say, you know, what what if what if the beautiful thing is, is that the goal isn't God for God just to take us from earth to heaven. But what if goal is also becoming one flesh with God um, and start looking at things like the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Uh, looking at things like why is it that the Lord's Supper is the very center of not just our worship services, but our identity. And so how does union laid over the whole Bible unveil um, 
a multitude of insights of not just where we've been and what we struggle with, but where we're going and ultimately God's uh, solution for our own transformation. Yeah, you actually talk about the uh, the tasting of the fruit being the anti-communion. Yeah. And then you also kind of challenge us, I think, to take communion way more seriously than a lot of people tend to take it. Particularly, you and I have the same heritage. We we are part of a church movement that takes communion every week. Yeah. And we shrink it down to the smallest possible, fastest possible approach, right? We almost give people fish food. Yeah. 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 Uh, talk to us a bit about that. Well, and I, I, I talk to my students about this because um, I, I say, you know, this kind of goes back to the the Reformation, you know, 500 years ago. Uh, where we have this, in, you know, enlightenment happening, the Protestants are split from the Catholics. I said, what's interesting is the Protestants and the Catholics, when they're talking about the Lord's Supper, uh, they were arguing how Jesus was more present in this moment, not whether or not he was present. <laughs> and so what I think is interesting today is that we actually engage communion as if it's almost like a mid-service snack. Uh, and, and yet the reality is, is that there, the Bible teaches, church history has always believed, Protestant and Catholic, that there is something unique about this moment where his presence is palpable. And so um, I teach students, I say, listen, this isn't me, you know, drawing a line in the sand in the sense of I'm going to move to the Catholic side or Protestant side. This is me saying this. The Bible's pretty specific that what you ingest, you unite with, you become. Um, we have the same adage in our own society. You know, you, you are what you eat or you become what you eat. Well, whenever we ingested death in the Garden of Eden, we became one with death. And each week that we ingest the body and the blood of Jesus, it gives us an opportunity to unite with him in a very incredible way, a healing way, ingesting grace. Yeah, it's really powerful. One of the, one of the symptoms you write about in ingesting death I guess one of the byproducts is racism. You go into your own adoptive journey and your grandmother. Yeah. And um, there's so much I loved about that story, but I, I found I found so much grace in what you wrote, but also the slow power of transformation. Yeah. I'd just love to hear anything you want to say about that. Well, and I think that that last line you said there too is, is really important. And that's a theme I pick up later in the book too, is that um, one of the things I'm concerned about our society now it's, it's not a question of whether or not we're united with death, it's how do we respond to this union? And a lot of the times we want transformation and we want it now. Uh, one of the things I found so powerful about Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and frankly, even about Jesus himself is that, is that their work that they were doing, they weren't even anticipating tasting the fruit for themselves. They were anticipating kickstarting a, a process of transformation for a society that they're really the fruits wouldn't even be um, harvested until much after their own death. And, and if we take that to an individual level and we realize, I, I tell my students this all the time with, because they're in Bible college and they're, you know, they're learning all this stuff about how to interpret the Bible and you know they're coming all across all these new ideas. And they, what they typically have the temptation to do is to go home and start using that knowledge to beat people over the head. And so I usually always ask them, I say, listen, how long did it take you to come to that conclusion? I say, how old are you? They're like 21. I say, okay, you need to give them that long to come to the same conclusion. Because, because honestly, growth too quick by definition is cancer. Um, mm -hmm. And we have to allow transformation to be something that needs in us. Um, now we need to confront it. And this is where racism is important. Like I wasn't going to hide my adopted son from my grandma. 
I was going to give her an opportunity to respond, but also protecting her and him, knowing that if she does respond to him in a racist manner, then I'm going to protect him and my family. And I'm also going to protect her so that she doesn't say something to the point where she regrets it to the point where she won't feel the ability to repent or to make amends. But transformation takes time and we're just very impatient. Yeah, is that what's one of the big problems with the church today is is we want to be transformed in one book or one podcast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I actually have a, a section towards the end of the book called a it's a a moment versus a movement, um, and and transformation is more like gardening than it is like going to Walmart and grabbing a piece of fruit from the produce section. It's just it it takes time and toil and pain. But it is through that toiling and that pain and that unearthing that the true rich fruit can grow. Well, and this isn't original with me, and I, I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of the guy I heard it from, but he, it was some preacher in Canada, hmm. which is really helpful for everybody. That narrows the field. <laughs> but um, boy, it was poignant. He told, he said, look, what what fruit tree bears fruit four seasons a year? Yeah. You know, there's there's always three seasons out of four where there's no fruit. Yeah. And that those are just as important for fruit bearing as the fruit season. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I actually preached a sermon uh, at, at the church I work at here locally uh, part time. I'm on their preaching team and I am. Um, but I, 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 I talked about I, I feel like I saw fall for the very first time uh, this past year where man in Joplin, Missouri, where I'm at, um, we just had the exact right amount of moisture because the colors were exploding. And I said, I'm looking at the trees going like, it's almost like they're screaming, like something amazing is about to happen. And I said, what was interesting is I, um, I said, I remembered feeling the same thing riding my bike that previous spring where all of the dogwoods are blooming and all of the, and I'm going, it's almost like creation's yelling, like something amazing just happened. And whenever I'm sitting there and I'm going, what's between fall and what's between spring, it's the barrenness of winter. And it's this, this beautiful picture of the leaves shedding all of their fig leaves and bearing all of themselves, all of their bends, all of their breaks, all of their knots, so th- to everyone, almost shamelessly. And the beautiful thing about that is that they know, creation knows, that it's that barrenness of winter that is necessary to produce the rich fruit of spring. I mean, I think the same is true inside of our paths of transformation. We just, we want to skip winter. We want to go straight to spring, uh, but anytime that that happens, it doesn't really bear the fruit we're looking for. Yeah, that's really that's really moving. That's a great metaphor, and I I kind of wondering, you know, how much is our own internal pressure? We just put ourselves under so much pressure to change instead of really truly trusting slow transformation. Yeah, and it, it might even be in some sense connected to our um, you know our our tendency to overlook Sabbath. I mean, we have this frenzy. That we, that we do not trust the space of what we would call inactivity, uh, but I would really call clearing space for the activity of God. Because um, and at the end of the book, I talk about this, where I, I felt like a couple of years ago, um, the Lord slowed me down and basically gave me this one message. Shane, you're really good at doing things for me, uh, but you're terrible at doing things with me. Um, and he was calling me to be, just to, to be present, to be still. And to trust that that's just as important of a work as the as writing a book or, or preaching a sermon or giving a lecture, uh, but we we bypass Sabbath because we don't think we have a use for it. 
I mean, it actually undercuts the very things we're looking for. Yeah. Thanks for that. That's, yeah, that's rich. Okay. So it was, it was right about the middle of your book. It, it had to be for me, one of the starkest openings of any chapter in history where you just lay out that you're six years old when you were sexually abused by a caretaker. Yeah. So there's a lot we could talk about that, Shane. What what I'd be interested in hearing from you, it, it feels like it feels connected to me with your theology of the union of death and how death creates uh, symptoms. Mm-hmm. And it seems like you, you give this guy a name, Joe, yeah. this, this abuser. It seems like Joe's sin uh, causes double damage. It causes the damage of abuse, but you also then end up carrying the shame. Yeah. Even though he's the one that did the shameful thing, you as the uh, victim are the one having to deal with the shame. Yeah. Tell us why is that? Yeah. I, um, it's because train or pain that isn't transformed is merely transferred from one person to another. Uh, pain, is, and this is going to sound like a silly illustration, but I was telling some college students the other night, I said, it's like, I said, it's like lead. I said, the reason why we have unleaded gas is because, you know, in the thirties, forties, fifties, and sixties, we're burning gas with lead in it. And then, you know, all the lead plants, their, their people are having deformed babies and cancer. And finally we came to our senses and realized we probably shouldn't be burning this lead and putting it into the air. But one of the scary things that we've realized is that lead, once it is, once it is burned into the air, it never leaves the atmosphere. It, it can't. It's the way that it's weighted. And, and I said, pain's the same way. Once, once we receive pain, it doesn't just go away. You can't cover it up with enough earth. It doesn't just leave the atmosphere of who you are. It will find a way out. And either it will be internally against you or it will be you transferring it to someone else. And, and this principle was so important for me because it actually was one of the significant pieces uh, for the pathway for me to forgive Joe, where I realized broken people break people. And so the question I began to really wrestle with and, and to pray about was who broke Joe? Um, and, and, and ultimately then what, what I am uh, thankful for is that in the process of finding Christ, the pain that Joe passed to me um, is actually passed to Christ on the cross and the transformation of that pain causes it so that transferring doesn't have to happen between us. But, but we think that pain is merely something that will, if we ignore it long enough or we busy ourselves long enough, it'll go away. It, it will not, it cannot, it is not, it is not intended to be a part of us. So it will look for a way out. Hmm. There's a common theme in what you're saying between your grandmother and Joe, mm. which is part, part of your healing journey. And I think part of why you're able to offer grace is empathy for a perpetrator in a yeah. sense. Yep. You're not dismissing, you're not no. giving them a free pass, but you have cultivated an empathy for them. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. Um, uh, you know, and it's one of those things where it's like, uh, I, I work with uh, an organization called Black Box International that deals with sex trafficking of young children. But one of the things, whenever I'm talking about it, and I'm, I'm very passionate about protect, especially young boys, that's what they center on. But, but I say, listen, we, we can't just focus on helping the trafficked. We also have to focus on restoring the traffickers. Uh, because ultimately, the way that the brokenness stops is not just through putting them into prison, 
It's through transforming them while they're in. This is where, honestly, if one of the things that the churches I wish we'd focused on more is the prison systems. It's almost like instead of rehabbing or transforming them, we put them in time out for so long. But but, but that doesn't heal the pain. It actually just, when they come out, they transfer the new pain they've received to someone else. Um, and the same thing is the same thing is true with, um, frankly, every wound. This is where I'm going like, you know, a lot of times we try to find a way to make the gospel like more edgy or more. I'm like, you want to know what's edgy is you walk up to someone and you say, forgive the greatest enemy of your story. <laughs> That's what the gospel is calling us to. That, that when we are hanging on the cross of our own pain, that we should be able, like Christ, to say, Father, forgive the perpetrators because they don't know what they're doing. They're just taking their brokenness and handing it to me. That'll, that'll ruffle some feathers. <laughs> and that's just grace. <laughs> that's some deep work. You, you were in your, if I recall, you were in your late 20s when you first went to a therapist to deal with this. Yeah, late 20s, yeah, around 30, right, right around that age, yeah. So I, How long ago was that relative to now? Uh, about six years. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's some pretty impressive work in six years. Because when the therapist first helped you identify, you got really angry. Oh yeah, very much so. It, it was that moment where he was like, and he didn't mean to, uh, yeah. but he was just like, you know, well, whenever I talk to other sexual abuse victims, and I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's like I am not a sexual abuse victim, and he was, and then he just very gently, he was like, okay. He's like, now if somebody told you that story, what would how, what would you call them? And it was that moment where I was like, oh, oh, my gosh, um, it's a it's a moment of self-awareness, a moment of clarity. Um, and that, and yeah, so, go ahead. Yeah, so, yeah you just you, you're describing a process that I think is essential. It's it's uh, this defensiveness and reactivity because I, I'm putting words in your mouth. No, so please ahead. correct yeah. me, Shane. But I think it's because you don't want to be labeled or seen as weak. Yeah. And then somewhere in that process, there's this incredible freedom. Yeah. Can you talk us through that shift from that initial defensive reaction to the embrace? Yes, it's slow. (laughs) And it's filled with uh, repeated, uh, repeating the story and and repeating um, uh, interactions with the wounds. The layers of the wounds uncover. They, they unravel. They don't just immediately. I think that's God's grace. I think if I experienced the totality of the brokenness of what I experienced at once, I think it would have killed me. But I think that over the last six years and, and new, you know, with my son turning 15 and starting to drive and with the very first time that in the last six years, my daughter is, is, is called fat. All these different moments were so significant. Uh, that as I would engage them, I would see my wound open up in a new way. And in the moment, whenever I'm responding to positive things or terrible things, uh, I would see my wound try to come out in the old patterns I'd laid down for 25 years. So a part of this, this naming of what it is and embracing, um, it's just, it's, it's not an identity you're embracing. It's the entry point to your healing that you're naming. So I, I am not, a sexual abuse victim is not what defines me, but it becomes my unique entry point to the healing of Christ. Um, and that, and the moment I can embrace that um, is the moment that true healing can start to do its inner work, which is necessary.
my take on your book, uh, just I'm looking at my notes here. Um, I would call it pathos-infused theology. <laughs> how, how would you describe it? I like that. That's pretty good. Uh, okay. You know, it's it's also my commitment to theology. I I you know I I do have a PhD, so I get the stuffy tweed jacket stuff. Like I've I've walked that road. But but I I just go and listen. If your theology doesn't change who you are, it's worthless. It, it's a it's a game. It's a it's a I mean it's a sterile object. Uh, but but for me, theology was never meant to be static. It was meant to be alive and breathing and moving and transformative. Um, so uh, so whenever I went to write this book, I'm going listen. I there are some things theologically have to get in place, but I don't know how to talk about them without talking about how they've transformed me, how it has unearthed me. Um, and and uh, and I've had somebody say recently they they said, well, that's actually the way a lot of our early church fathers used to write. <laughs> you know, Augustine's Confessions was was wrestling with the deep realities of God, uh, but in a very autobiographical, unearthing way. So yeah, but, but pathos infused theology. I think I think maybe I'll put that on my uh, <laughs> on my resume. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, what's your word for preachers? Some of our listeners are, are preachers, and you know whether they're preaching pastors or youth ministers. But um, you know your ability to the, the way I picture it is you're like dipping the tea bag of theology into the cup of Shane or or uh, the other way around. We could flip the metaphor that sure. I'm for for the purists out there. If God's the mug and Shane's the tea bag, that's fine. <laughs> But there is that infusion. There's that 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 uh, permeable interaction between your life and the goodness of God, yeah. and that's that's to me what made the book so rich. Is you're just you are writing a theology of Revelation and Genesis and the cross, but you're you're interacting. I think it was in the book you said that you know the scripture reads us as much as we read the scripture. All of that. Yeah. This is my very long-winded way of asking: What's your guidance for young preachers on how to do that well? Yeah, um, it would be uh, the simple sentence of this. You can only take people to where you, where you yourself have gone. Um, this is, uh, somebody was even asking me this about, about writing. They're like, you know, I mean, like, how do I get started as a writer? I say, you dive deep into the parts of your heart that you don't want to look at. Um, and, and that's the same. That's the, what I find, what I love about, um, you know, the, the great authors like Dostoevsky, um, and, uh, you know, George MacDonald is that, is that they have an insight to the human psyche and, and the way in which we wrestle and they bring it out in a narrative form that is so palpable that, that you don't even realize that, that uh, the reason why you're connecting with a crime and punishment or the idiot is because you're seeing a mirror of your own heart, a mirror of your own soul. I mean, so it's a backdoor way of doing it, but the way that a Dostoevsky uh, gets to that point, or the way that a true pastor or counselor or even spiritual director gets to the point of effectiveness is when they have actually walked that path themselves, when they've stared into the mirror of their own brokenness themselves. And as I've unearthed and pulled open uh, my chest, literally at times it felt like, um, it, it has made me a better professor. It has made me a better preacher. It has made me a better teacher. Because I'm actually asking the questions of the heart that a lot of us are too afraid to ask, or we don't even know we're asking. And the only way you know your heart is crying out a lot of these questions is if you created space and done the painful work of digging into what the heart is saying. And so my, my encouragement to the young pastors is, listen, 
studying the Bible is, is, is really important. Prepping for your sermons is important. But honestly, going to counseling and digging out your past and, uh, and learning what it feels like to go through the pain of healing is just as important because your sermons will be more enriched because they come from a different place. Yeah, when I was a hospital chaplain, the, they called it the living human document, that we should be spending just as much time on hermeneutics of ourselves as we are on the word. Yeah. So let's push on this a little bit. I love the the idea of digging into your pain and even going into a therapist. Yeah. But I, I also can already tell you wouldn't suggest seeing a therapist on Thursday and then sharing Sunday. When no. when do you know you're ready? <laughs> yeah. Every it, what I love about that too uh, that question is that it's um, it gives us the opportunity to reflect on the fact that everyone is different. Uh, that the path and the pace for every single person is different. Uh, we, we in the church right now are pretty addicted to, uh, you know, cookie cutter uh, templates that if I do this in every single church, it will equal this, or I do this with every single person, it equals this. Yes. Although now all the templates have to look authentic. So that just adds an even more sophistication. We have to, the templates have to be faded and it's crazy. <laughs> it is. And, and we're always looking for this, this thing, the, the, the code, the key. Uh, but the beautiful thing is, is, is no garden looks exactly the same, but they all produce fruit. <laughs> uh, and that's what I would, that's what I would say with this. No. How do you know when you're ready? Um, well, what's interesting is I, I, I told my, uh, my counselor, I told him my entire story and all of its gory details when I was 30, I didn't even tell my parents I was an abuse victim until 33. Um, it took me three years and I had actually committed to saying, I don't think they need to know it's fine. Uh, but then I realized that a part of my healing was to not hide from the people that love me most, my greatest wound. However, when that happens, if that happens, every person's path of healing is different. But what I will say is, um, don't shock the system of the people around you as a way to heal. Heal and then give them the gift of your healing. Don't use them as instruments of your healing because uh, a lot of the times that can do more damage to you and to them. I didn't really start sharing my story. Not, and I don't even feel like the concept of I've dealt with it. I, I don't like that. We're always dealing with it. It's an unending yeah. narrative. Um, but I began to share my story whenever I realized I didn't need the people that I'm sharing it to. I didn't need something from them in order to be healed. I think this is really helpful. I'm really glad I asked you because I you know, this is the first time you and I have met. So I, I know you through the book and I know you through some mutual friends, but yeah. it, did, it didn't take long in the interview to realize this. I, I'm sitting with a person who is intimately familiar with pain and grief. You know, you're, you're acquainted. Hmm. Uh, so I, I'm really glad I asked because I do think a lot of faith leaders feel um, an artificial pressure to be authentic. Yeah. And I think this is one of the ways it can really do it. It's well-meaning damage. In the interest of authenticity, people share their pain before they're really ready to. I thought that was a really helpful uh, no. guide, guide on it. Yeah. And I, and I think that that's a really important thing to emphasize what you just said. It's uh, we, we just sometimes we use the people around us for the healing and we call it a gift. And that's where it's like, listen. It's also authentic to say, I'm not ready to be fully authentic. It's okay to say that. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Millennials and centennials everywhere just started twitching. Like that's just, 
<laughs> right. The idea that authenticity itself can be measured is yeah. wisdom. Yeah. Okay. Hey, it brings me up to my last question before I inflict upon you my gauntlet of anxiety questions. Um, you're a college professor. You, I think, are, are you technically a millennial, Shane? I, I think so. I was born in '82, so yeah, I think you're right on the on the cusp. Um, I'd love to hear from you because your context is people training for for faith based leadership. Yeah. Uh, what pressures do you see that these students are under? Mm -hmm. uh, what pressures are they bringing into the class that you're trying to help relieve them of? Yeah, the number one thing that comes to my mind is identity crisis. They, 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 they don't know who they are, and they don't know how to ask the question. Um, a lot of the times, they sit back and they're they're told who they are, whether positively or negatively. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, especially like, and it's funny because I'm, I'm like right on the cusp of the millennials. I don't feel like a millennial. Uh, I feel like it's almost like it depends on which generation I'm sitting around that I actually feel most myself. Right. Uh, but honestly, whenever I look at the millennials, I'm like, man, the the the, um, the bad rap that they got even before they were able to make decisions for themselves was pretty startling. Um, it's one of the things where I, I always try to tell myself this. It's like, Whatever I'm criticizing in the younger generations, I need to remember my generation gave it to them. <laughs> like they're a reflection of us. I say this to pastors and leaders too. It's like, don't forget, if you don't like a lot of the things that are happening in your pews, I'm not saying that the people in the pews are absolved of what they're doing, but they are looking into a mirror every single Sunday. What are they seeing when they look at you? Um, and so there's a lot of the, the rap that the millennials got. I felt like it was a lot of the things that the other generations were running from inside of themselves. I agree. And so, and so the millennials are struggling with, you tell me I'm this and I, and then I hear that. And then we have the society saying, this is the way to find your identity. So now we define identity through, um, you know, sexual identity or gender dysphoria. I mean, like there's so many categories of identity and we call all of these being true to yourself. And I think that the funny thing about that mantra is it reveals we have no idea who we are. Um, and that's honestly a part of what even this book was about. It's an exploration of identity. We are one with death, but we are we are created in the image of God and we are being called to be one with him again. Um, and so what I deal with a lot of times with our students is I try to deconstruct the, the different narratives that they've been handed by the world that tells them who they are and then offer them Christ and allow Christ to reconstruct the identities that he ultimately has been wanting to give us since Genesis 1. Yeah. I, uh, I work with a lot of millennials at our church. We have several on staff, mm -hmm. and I have found myself over the years getting really defensive of them because I have friends in ministry that caricature millennials. Yeah. And w when I listen to the caricature, I think, boy, that sounds exactly like me when I was that age. Like, yeah. it's not it's not a generational thing. It's an age. Like, we're yeah. all that way in our 20s. But I do see – and so, like, I, I learn a lot from the millennials on my stuff, for example. I learn a lot about optimism and yeah. hope, and yes. they have a great work ethic. Uh, the millennials work really hard. Yeah. But I But I – I'd like to hear from you on the pressure they seem to face to change the world today. Like, that – that patience you talked about earlier, they seem to be under this unnecessary pressure that they can both a change the world because we told them, like the world's a big place. Like I can, I don't know if you're a fan of um, Phineas and Ferb. Have you yeah. ever seen that show? <laughs> yeah. So Dr. Doofenshmirtz, I think is a great model for us because 
uh, ruling the world was too big, so we just focused on the tri-state area. You know, like I just think that's amazing. <laughs> and yet we use these superlative words, and then not only are they to change the whole world after thousands of years of brokenness, mm-hmm. but they're to do it by Christmas. <laughs> Um, are you seeing that too in your students? Oh, absolutely. That's the that's the uh, the um, inverse effect of even like the social media, the world, um, or even just the the information at our hands. The world has shrunk so far that I remind I have to remind students a lot of times. I'm like, listen, it's okay if you don't text someone back for 24 to 72 hours. 50 years ago, you'd have to write a letter, and it would take a week for correspondences to happen at a fast pace. And there's a part of this where, honestly, like the distraction stuff and like, you know, you know, technology has all kinds of different things you can fall into. The thing I'm most concerned with millennials is we're challenging them to to have attributes of God in their hand, to be present to everyone in the entire world all at the same time. Um, and, and that 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 is something that I think is causing this anxiety whenever you apply that principle to issues of justice or, or issues of pastoring, it, it creates an anxiety that is overwhelming because I am not meant to bear the weight of every person's burdens worldwide. That's that's God himself. Uh, so when I look at the millennials, it is, it's this, it's this unnecessary burden that they feel. And so what I try to do too is to give them permission to be present where they are. A matter of fact, one of the ways I try to do with my students is I say, we have to fall in love with the ordinary again. We, we, we have so, I, I, I try to tell them like, listen, I teach the book of Acts. I say, the book of Acts though is the greatest hits of the church over 30 years. I said, this isn't the way it's supposed to be every day for every person. I was like, this is 30 year highlights whenever the church was exploding. But the problem is, is that we have this, um, this zeal to save the entire world in a moment. Whenever, honestly, the best thing you can do is to, first of all, heal inner and then second of all, treat your waiter or your waitress better. <laughs> treat your, you know, the people that are sitting next to you on, look at them in the eye. Like the simple things is what gives us our identity and our humanity back. Um, and I think those things actually would prepare us for the big projects that like um, dealing with world hunger and, you know, gun violence and, and all these other issues that they feel burdened with every moment of every day. Yeah, Wow. I've I've never in my life thought about how a phone is actually um, connected to the lie from Genesis that I can be like God. That's a phenomenal insight you just gave us. Thanks. Yeah. Any before we jump in, anything else on that you want to say? That's I think that's profound. No, I, I think it's the it's one of the things I would say is that uh, Satan has no new tricks. He just recasts them in every generation. The problem is we fall for him every generation. <laughs> You don't need new tricks if people keep falling for the same things. And so the fact is, is that um, it, it's the phone is not what is evil. It's the way that he has distorted it so that it actually challenges us to grasp a hold of attributes of God that only belong to God. Um, and that to me is a, is a key source of anxiety. Anxiety comes whenever we, we try to move beyond what humans were ever asked to be. I believe that the fundamental issue with leaders and parents is anxiety, which isn't always worry. It can be worry, but it's any response that blocks our ability to be present and human to each other and fully human to God. 
And so I, I believe that anxiety is one of the chief competitors uh, for the space that God resides in. Mm-hmm. So therefore, if we can name it and move through it, we actually can encounter grace in a deeper level. Yeah. So the way we help our listeners is we start by identifying it physiologically in our body. Yeah. And my theory is that anxiety either begins in a spinning mind, a racing heart, or a tightening gut. Yeah. Are you able to name where it begins for you? Bottom left quadrant of my gut. Okay. Hands down, absolute. <laughs> what is that? What is the bottom left quadrant biologically? It's away from the appendix. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not the. I, I honestly don't know if I know the, the and it's, I just know, I know the tightening, I know the burning, I know the pain. Bottom left. Wow. What do you do when you start to notice that? Uh, the very first thing I do is I I do I speak it out loud, uh, and a lot of times um, I do a lot of contemplative prayer. A lot of, uh, you know, creating space to receive the Lord. Um, and it's in those spaces where a lot of times whenever I, I notice that that's what it is that's, that's kind of grabbing my attention physiologically, I simply ask the spirit to unearth what it is that, that, that is trying to communicate. I feel like our bodies are trying to communicate to us all the time. I feel like it's one of the gifts that God gave us with our bodies. Um, and we just have to train ourselves how to listen. And whenever the spirit unearths, whatever it is, then my next response is immediate. I just, I ask for the, I give the Lord permission and ask him to be present in that space. But yeah. And sometimes it does take me a couple hours before I can create that space to engage that. But I immediately know something is trying to say something. Great. Yeah. That's, that's what I teach is the power of externalization Mm. flips the power dynamic where it no longer has you. Yes. By naming it and praying it through, you now have it and you can give it to God. That's yeah. outstanding. And if you think of that through the lens of union, whenever you're naming it out loud, you're offering God to become one with that, which is actually trying to pull you away in its union with you. Absolutely. Another source of anxiety is any time that you believe you need something in any given moment that you don't actually need. So, for example, in my life, I always believe that I need to be understood. And when someone misunderstands me, I get all anxious. Mm. Can, are, are you able to name right now a need that you believe you need, but you don't actually need? Uh, it, for me, it would be uh, predictability. Uh, is, some people will say it's control. It's not control. I, I don't care who's in control. I just, if they tell me they're in control, whatever they tell me, I'll do, I'll obey. But if I feel the rug pulled out from under me, um, I immediately, I, I get a trigger. If I, if something happens, like for example, um, my wife and I, we talk about it maybe the night before and I'm like, Hey, our weekend, do we have any plans? Is it wide open? She's like, yeah, sure. Uh, it's nothing. They have nothing. And then all of a sudden Friday comes and she's like, Oh, by the way, we have these people coming over. I immediately seize up. Uh, and it's not even because it's coming. It's because I don't feel protected. I don't feel I, the predictability, I guess, is a code word for me to say protection. I don't feel. And so my wife and I, our fights, like people say, yeah, in your first couple of years, you'll fight about sex and money. I'm like, no, ours was Calendar. always about plans. It was always like me going like, I wasn't, I wasn't planning on that, but I, it's me grasping at something that I don't really need, but it comes from my wound. Um, would you be willing? Oh, well, before I ask the question, I think another source of anxiety, particularly in a leader or a parent is um, recovering from a mistake because all our mistakes are public. And I'm not talking about the whopper mistakes where you should end up in jail or fired. 
but every mistake I make as a leader is in front of my people that I'm leading. Yeah. So if I don't deal with it, I'll, I'll end up no longer leading or hedge my bets. It's vulnerable. Yeah. Would you be willing to share a recent mistake you've made and how you recovered from it? Well, it was funny because we, we've been having issues. You know, I have, I have a 15-year-old, a 13-year-old, an 11, almost 12-year-old, and then a 6-year-old. So we're in the talkback phase. <laughs> so I'm, I'm pretty sensitive to it, especially because my kids try to get away with it more with my wife than with me for some reason. So I'm very sensitive to it when they're doing it to my wife. And so last night, this was last night, I'm sitting uh, at the kitchen table and I'm working on something and my wife and one of my sons is sitting on the, on the, uh, on the couch and, and I hear them kind of talking back and forth and it sounds like they're negotiating. And it sounded like my son kind of gave her lip and was arguing with her. So I, from the table, 15 feet away, I interject myself and I'm like, Hey, you do not talk to your mom like that. And if you ever talk to her like that again, and I'm going to go, and my, all of a sudden, halfway through, I kind of see my wife give me this look like, what are you doing? And I see my son kind of doing this look too. And I was like, what? And my wife was like, he didn't say anything like that. My son was like, I never said any of that. And I was like, okay. I, 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 I said, well, I was very sensitive to something I perceived. I was totally wrong. And then I, and I went up to him. I actually left my space, went over to him. I was like, hey, I was wrong. That was totally out of line. Uh, I should, number one, I shouldn't have jumped in something 15 feet away. Number two, I, I should have actually been more patient to hear what it was, was being said. And I, I just asked him to for, forgive me in the moment. Um, and I, and, uh, and it's funny because my kids are usually ready to forgive me quicker than I'd be ready to forgive myself. <laughs> Isn't that something? Isn't that another conduit of God's grace? I think is our kids like hair trigger to forgive. Yeah. Yeah. They're all, really something. They're elastic. Uh, you know, I'll even the next day, sometimes I'll, I'll, I will not have slept well because of the way I talk to them at night and I'll forgive them the next day. And my kids are like, I, I don't really know what you're talking about, but you're forgiven. <laughs> right. And I was like, Great man, I wish I could do that all the days. Oh man. In my worst so days. <laughs> yeah. Um, on this podcast, you know, about 50% of our shows, we deal with internal anxiety, about 50% we deal with anxiety in a group. Because if a if a leader can learn to notice when a group is anxious, yeah, and actually deal with that rather than just the agenda, you can get way further. Yeah. Do you have a time where you can uh, share where you've seen anxiety be contagious in a group? Yes, um, yes. Uh, specifically, um, and this one, I'm gonna, I'm going to have to be more veiled just to make sure I protect. Uh, even the institutions and stuff that I'm connected to, but I'm in a room uh, where a new policy is being, being what is from the top down is being called clarified, but from the bottom up, it was a significant shift that was actually causing some people to even wrestle with because of the policy shift. Am, am I now going to be fired or can I continue to work here? In um, the palpable nature, it was actually a really interesting lesson for me too of uh, misreading um, from a leader's perspective, misreading what I was about to do, and then at the same time misreading also what was happening in the room as it was being done. Um, oh yeah, I mean from from uh, you know people, which this is pretty significant, setting down their phones and kind of tilting their head 
to the even changing of the breath and the people next to me where not necessarily that it's loud, but it's, it's more in the upper register. Um, and then afterwards, you know, the, the chatter, the, the, the tense palpitation that kind of is resonating in the group, uh, quite significant. Now, the beautiful part of the story is uh, some of us were able to approach the leadership and they created a forum to hear feedback. And it was one of the most brutal two and a half hours I've ever watched a leader sit through. Um, but one of the most amazingly powerful moments because the leader responded to everyone's anxiety with self-awareness, with, with confession, saying, I misread this. We're going to slow down, back up and, re and, and, and listen, listen more. But yeah, that moment was, was palpable. It was, you could taste it. It's a good example. Yeah. Yeah. When in your life, Shane, do you feel most fully loved? Oh, wow. That's a good one. Uh, yeah, believe it or not, I got that question from Dana Carvey, of all people, the comedian. No kidding. Yeah, I was watching an episode of uh, Seinfeld's um, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. Okay. And Dana Carvey was the guest, and he's goofing around. He's doing his church lady bit and his George Bush bit, and he stops dead in the middle of it and looks at Jerry and says, Hey, Jerry, when do you feel most fully loved? And I, I was undone. <laughs> So I've been asking it ever since. I, I actually love that. Love the comedians and cars getting coffee. I think that it shows you the brilliance and the sharpness of the inside of a comedian, like an author or like a pastor. The reason why I struggle with that question, and I, I don't know if you're familiar with or if you're anti uh, the Enneagram, uh, but the Enneagram over the last three to four years has been, has been a, a tool that I've been introduced to and have been really healing for me. And I identify I, I, I don't I don't say I am a because it's not my identity, but I identify as a one. And so as a one internally, I, uh, you know, I'm always guilty. And so asking that yeah. question is actually a question I ask myself a lot when I'm trying to unearth, uh, because the reality is, is I don't always matter of fact, even some of my breathing prayers I do. Um, one of them's come from Brennan Manning. Um, an author, and it's to breathe in the name Jesus and to breathe out, I am your beloved, uh, because that's one of the truths I have a hard time believing. Um, when I feel the most loved, though, is not uh, when I get a compliment. Um, it's not when I am on a stage. Um, typically, when I feel the most loved is uh, through some sort of act of service that I know no one else will know but me. Um, that's, that's when you're performing the act of service. No, when someone's doing it for me. Okay. Yeah. Whenever, like um, when it's, yes. Uh, when I feel the most loved by a person, that's when it happens. Uh, when I feel the most loved by God, it's whenever I'm frankly, when I'm isolated from everyone else. Um, I, I'm, I, whenever I, uh, am in those sacred spaces where everything, uh, from schedules to agendas, to books, to, outside voices are gone in that space. I feel the most centered and loved by God. Something's going through in my head that we may edit out of this. If, okay. if this is um, crossing a line chain, but sure. what strikes me is with your journey and your trauma, which happened in secret one-on-one, mm -hmm. -on -one, it's powerful to me that that's the one-on-one -on -one secret is the way you experience deep love. There's something there. And also you've shared that you don't like to be caught off guard with a schedule. Yeah. 
and it's not a control issue, but it is a safety issue. That, that's a pal. That's a palpable theme going on there. Yeah, and and least from my perspective, you don't you don't have to edit that out at all. I think that's so important for us to see how our life narratives they they do appear in the present, but they don't have to control our future. Um, it's it's entry points to the patterns are so important. I, I talk about this with uh, the Enneagram a lot, as I say. One of the things that we pay attention to too much is the waves in the ocean, but it's the undercurrents that are creating the waves that actually you need to focus on. And the undercurrents, a lot of times the, the, the waves are the wounds. It's the, it's the, you know, the abuse moment, but the undercurrents that, that create those triggers is ultimately what it is. But you're right. The, the one-on-one with me and the Lord is not an accident. The schedule rug out from under me, that's not an accident. That's an entry point to further explore the healing of my story. Final question is, uh, what activities and places make you feel most fully alive? Yeah. And you don't have to name them all. Just give us a couple. Cities. And by places, I mean uh, literal geographical places, okay. actual locations. For me, it's cities. Uh, it, it's actually, uh, it's weird because I'm an introvert. But I love when there's activity happening around me. They just, but I can be anonymous within the activity. And, I, and that's what I love about cities. There's a connectivity of a city, but you can also be simultaneously anonymous. So uh, even the way I wrote the book is I went to uh, Rhode Island, Providence, Rhode Island, and walked around the city and just would sit at coffee shops and would write, uh, but also say, uh, like sacred spaces or um, spaces infused with history. Uh, so I would I sat down in the Athenaeum Library where Edgar Allan Poe wrote wrote some of his last writings. Um, whenever I was doing my schooling at uh, Edinburgh, I walk in the same streets as David Hume and as John Knox. Uh, it's spaces where I'm going in the stones. Uh, there are there are thoughts in a history that are far beyond the present moment. Those those are invigorating to me. So uh, yeah, those are some of the spaces and places I love love. Thanks for joining us today. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram from the handle Steve Cusswords. You can also go to stevecusswords.com for more resources. This episode has been a production of Brendan Reed and Steve Cuss.